to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Cool. Romans chapter 12. Won't you turn there, please? Um, and while you do that, why don't you tell your neighbor it's upgrade season? You're getting some of my Pentecostal charismatic nature coming out. I like it when people talk in church. It's time for an upgrade, amen? Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Some of my story is that I grew up in church. Um, I grew up in what I call charismania. We, uh, I went to a church that was wild and crazy. I grew up seeing signs and wonders. It's why I love the miraculous. It's why I love seeing God break out. Um, but I also grew up in church that was slightly legalistic. Slightly, um, well, not slightly, very performance-driven. And, uh, you know, you had to do right in order to be right. I'm so glad that Jesus makes you right before you need to do right. Um, that God is not interested in behavior modification. He's interested in heart transformation. Amen. And um, it meant that every time I heard this scripture, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, as the Old King James Version says, that by the mercies of God, you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. My first thought would be, ouch, that's not fun. Uh, Sacrifice has to do with death, not with life, and I don't want to be a living sacrifice on an altar. I prefer to um, not sacrifice at all. Am I allowed to be honest in church? And uh, every time I heard this, it was always from unhappy preachers preaching an unhappy gospel about how you really need to pay the price and sacrifice for God. And I'm hoping today that you're going to hear a happy experience of this verse because I believe that sacrificing view of God's mercy is one of the most delightful and most beautiful things that you can do. And I'm trusting that God will unpack some of this for you because I believe God wants to upgrade your thinking. Um, I don't know about you, but I love upgrades. I love it when anything new comes out, particularly if it's of the Apple variety. I'm like, I want the upgrade, you know. Um, have the thing for two years, and I'm thinking, let's just get the next one. Um, I love upgrades, and I'm trusting for some upgrades around your thinking today. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Right thinking equals uh, it, it, right thinking is the platform for you to live right and to do right. Okay, but right thinking doesn't just happen overnight. God wants to bring transformation to your heart. God wants to change who you are on the inside. Excuse me. Um, and when I've read this verse so many times, I've thought to myself, gosh, this looks like hard work. And I just want to quickly lay some foundation. Paul is writing to a church in Rome. He's not visiting this church. And he says this, I want you to renew your mind. I want you to change the way you think. Um, so that you live acceptable in this present age. When he talks about this present age, it's a phrase that Paul loves to use, right? 
Uh, you'll see this in the book of Ephesians, and you'll see it in the book of Colossians, that he talks about this present age, and he does so in contrast to the age that is to come. And when Paul uses that phrase, the age which is to come, he's talking about the domain of the gracious rule of our king coming in and breaking in on us right now. He's saying that there is a moment that is to come and that has come in which God's kingdom, his grace, his kindness, his love, his outrageous provision, his shalom, is breaking in on us. Whenever the Bible talks about shalom, it's not talking about just peace in the way that we understand it as in absence of warfare. He's talking about the blessing, the prosperity, the kindness, the goodness of God coming to make things as God always intended them to be. And so when Paul is talking about this and he's saying holy and acceptable, do not be conformed to this present age, to this world, he's saying that the systems of this world cannot and will not ever bring radical change to you. You have to plug into another world system. You have to plug into another operating system. It's the operating system of the kingdom, and he's breaking in on us now. This morning, as we took um, communion together as a family, you need to understand that communion is not just about what God did on the cross, but it is about the future coming kingdom breaking in on us now. It's such goodness. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He's literally saying that when you do this, remember that I'm coming, and I will make all things new. You see, God's going to take everything that you see and he's going to redeem it and he's going to make it new. And the reality is that we as the people of God right now, we act as the prophetic contact point of what's to come already. It's why we pray for the sick, because there is no sickness in heaven. It's why we uh, lift up the poor and the broken, because there are no poor and broken in heaven. It's why we believe in a healthy family, because heaven has healthy family. And so we act as the community that is the outpost for that kingdom. We act as the community that is enjoying the age to come right now. I don't know about you, but that is good news, and our world needs to hear that. It does not compete with world systems. It supersedes world systems. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He was saying that you think you've got the power. The reality is the way I lay down my life in love is the ultimate form of power. You see, God's ability to change circumstances, God's ability to bring healing is not connected to his power. It's connected to his love. Because love is the driving force of his power. You see, in the world, power is about position and authority. It's about how you exude influence and exert influence over people because of your position or because of your authority. In the kingdom, it's because of a life laid down. It's because of a people of love. And Paul's arguing in this context, and he's been talking to the church in Rome about how our whole life has been changed. He's been talking to the church in Rome about how we were once dead to God and we were living for sin but now we're dead to sin and alive to God he was talking about how we were once married to the law which told us how bad we were how wrong we were but now we are married to Jesus we're joined to him and I love what they say at weddings what God is joined together let no man separate We've been joined to Christ. There's nothing that can separate us from him. And Paul then says, after all of this, he's been laying down this incredible theological and experiential truth. He says, therefore, or he says, I appeal to you, 
Brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And when I think about that, I often think to myself, I I don't know if I want to sacrifice. I don't know if I want to give a whole lot more. Because sometimes the Christian life feels like you're just sacrificing a whole lot, doesn't it? I'm going to say amen to that point myself because that's what it sometimes feels like. But when I began to dig a little bit deeper, I began to realize that this verse is not talking about your ability to sacrifice. This verse is actually talking about his ability to infuse resurrection life into you. You see, what Paul has been doing up until now is he's been arguing that you were living under the weight of sin. You were living to sin and for sin. Your whole identity was predisposed towards sin. But when Jesus came, you died with him. And he says to us in that context, he's wanting to contrast death and life, and he does so throughout the book of Romans. He's saying to us that the reality is now that because you are a Christian, because you've been joined to Christ, the dead body that you had that was once alive to sin can now be sacrificed, and it now becomes a conduit for resurrection life. <laughs> he, he's saying in the same way that Jesus died and sacrificed his body for you and me, we now offer our bodies as the sacrifice through which living resurrection life now flows. Oh, let me help you a little bit. It means that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead quickens your mortal bodies to live an extraordinary life. It means that you get to live an overcoming life. It means that the exchange that happened when you became a Christian was not just a little, um, a, a better experience of you. It was a completely brand new you because life is now infused through you. You see, when the Bible says to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus, we often think about picking up suffering and how difficult it's going to be. But actually, the cross for the Christian does not represent the place of death any longer. The cross for the Christian represents the place of life. So when God says to you, pick up your cross and follow me, he's saying pick up resurrection life because the cross no longer has a body on it. Shika bazooka. The cross no longer. (laughs) The cross no longer has someone on it who's dead because Jesus is alive, resurrected and seated at the right hand of God. And his life is now your life. You see, Many of us think that it's our job to imitate Jesus. No, no, no. Your salvation means that you have now become a participator with the life of Jesus. It's not just that you're trying to be like him. It's that you are joined to him and his life is now flowing through you in view of God's mercy. Jump onto that altar And allow your body that was once alive to sin, but now dead to sin, to become the conduit, to become the place of life that begins to flow through you, so that you begin to change the world around you. Your body becomes the sacrifice through which the life of Christ is now lived. I don't know about you, but I can sacrifice for that. I can sacrifice for that. And Paul goes on to say, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when I began to think about this verse, I used to think that renewing my mind is simply about taking scripture and putting it into my head. 
And I grew up learning how to quote all of the good verses in the Bible. John 3.16, all of them, you, you know the ones. You know, greater is he is in me than he that is in the world. And I thought if I can just get enough of the Bible into my head, then I can overcome sin. Then I can overcome challenges. Then I can overcome uh, difficulties. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, getting the Bible into your head doesn't necessarily transform the way you live. How many of you have ever had those what would Jesus do bands? Um, I was super geeky back in the day. I had one in every color possible. I mean, they were like halfway up my arm. And I remember looking at my what would Jesus do bang, thinking to myself, oh, what would Jesus do? And thinking to myself, "Mm, probably not what I'm about to do. Because outward behavioral modification does not change your heart. The goodness and the love of God changes your heart. And the Bible says here that we are to renew our mind. And I want to just unpack what this means because if you can get this, you will live and you will begin to live live a life of ever-increasing victory. The word renew is the word in the original there, anakinos. It means to think again through the lens of newness. And what Paul is saying is you were once... um, Living in a place of death, you were once living in a place of being in bondage to sin. You now have been born again. You died the death that Jesus died. How many of you know that you were in Christ on that cross long before you were born? You died his death. You were buried like he was buried. You have now been raised like he is raised. And you are now seated where he is seated. That is good news. The Bible says we are seated in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And he says, I want you to think through the lens of newness. Now, the word kainos is a word for new. It's the word where we get the word new from. And there are two words in the Bible that describes new. There's the word neos, and then there's the word kainos. And I want to just unpack this, because if you get this, you're going to get very happy, I promise. Neos is new in relation to time. Okay, it means that I have and I had an iPhone 5, I now have an iPhone 10 or whatever it is right now, I can't keep up with the numbers. I've got a new iPhone in relation to time, that's Neos. Kainos is the word for new in relation to quality, function and form. And when the Bible says you're a new creation, it's saying you are a new kainos. You are new in relation to quality, function, and form. And it's kind of like I have an iPhone 6, but now I've got an iPhone 20,015 that is phenomenal. It can bake cakes. It can cause you to hover across the ground. It can act like a lightsaber. It can... It can transport you from one place to the other. It's new in relation to function, form, and quality. When the Bible says you're a new creation, it's not just saying you are a more improved version of your old self. It's not just saying that you're an upgraded version of your old self. It is saying that you are new in relation to function, form, and quality. You're a completely new species. Man, sorry, I just get so excited at that thought. And what Paul is saying is, you now need to think through the lens of your new creation. 
In order for you to overcome the temptations of this world, in order for you to live a victorious life, you need to change the way you think. You need to upgrade your thinking around who you now are. Oh, oh brothers and sisters, this is, this is super exciting because for many in the church, we have been more preoccupied with our old nature than we are with our new nature. And the Bible says what you behold you become like. And when you behold your old sinful self and you say things like, I'm just a sinner. Woe is me. I'm not really that good. I'm so pathetic. I'm so bad. That's what you become like. But when you begin to redefine the way you think around who you now are as the new creation person that God has created you to be, everything changes. Everything changes. Listen, You need to understand that long before you were found in Adam, you were found in Christ. The Bible says before the foundations of this earth, he chose you to be holy and blameless. That is good news. It means that I'm not preoccupied with my sinful state. I'm preoccupied with my in Christ likeness. I have to upgrade my thinking because stinking thinking produces unhelpful living. I have to change the way I think so I begin to see myself primarily through who Jesus is. Terry Virgo, a great, um, amazing mentor of mine, says this. He says, the 33 years of perfect obedience that Jesus lived, the 33 years of miracles, the 33 years of divine intimacy with the Father, the 33 years of holy, righteous living has been given to you as a free gift, as if you lived that life yourself. Change the way you think. Change the way you think. You were found in Christ. My life is participating with the life of Christ. My body is now the conduit of resurrection life. Um, I remember, excuse me, I remember the first time I got to fly business class, I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> I was like, sweet Jesus, this is amazing. I, I was born in Cape Town uh, in South Africa. We, you know, I couldn't afford to do anything like that. And so I remember those wonderful words, Mr. Adams, you have been given an upgrade. I was like, the rapture has come early. <laughs> I'm entering into my reward. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, I remember walking into business class thinking to myself, all the other suckers have to go to cattle class. I get to come here. Flat beds, amazing stream TV. I was so preoccupied with all the gadgets and all the stuff around me. I was like, sweet Jesus, can life get any better than this? This is the reason why you came, Lord. So that I could sit in business class. And as I'm sitting in business class and chillaxing and seeing everything around me, thinking, I cannot believe the size of the screen and the legroom. This is amazing. In walks this kind of 10-year-old kid, and uh, he sits down next door to me. And you can see this kid's got some attitude. He's got some sass. So he walks right on in, sits down, and this is what he does. I kid you not. He clicks his fingers like this. I'm thinking, boy, if you did that while my mama was around, you would have got the fivefold ministry applied to your behind so quickly. I'm just thinking, how rude is this kid? And to my utter surprise, 
this woman, a grown woman, comes running over to him. Master, what can I do for you? I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just unbelievable. I would never allow an older woman to talk to my kid like that. It's not going to happen, not on my watch. And he gives off a whole list of stuff that he wants. I'm like, I'm just super impressed, super impressed that I'm able to sit down in a flatbed. He's like, give me a Sprite. I want some Smarties or whatever. He's like listing all the stuff that he wants. And a woman goes and gets it for him. And he kind of sits down. He looks at me. He looks away and he presses a button and this visor goes up between us. I'm like, who is this kid? Like, I wanted to get up and give him the fivefold ministry at that point. And the father spoke to me and said, son, I want you to watch something here because I want to teach you something. And he began to say to me, this boy has grown up with a wealth mindset. You could see that he'd been used to traveling, business, class for a long time. And he said, the problem with you, son, is you think through a poverty mindset because you do not know who you are. Now, do I think that his attitude was right? Absolutely not. Do I think that his parents should have told him not to be so rude? Absolutely. But what I did get is that this guy, this is his normal. Most of us, our normal is a sin-focused, preoccupied life. Our normal should be our Christ-likeness. God wants you to think through the lens of newness and he wants to upgrade your thinking. Um, I love what happens in Genesis. How many of you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? You remember that story? Esau gives up an eternal inheritance for a temporary satisfaction. I, I, I know so many Christians who do this. We get preoccupied and we get caught up with our need that's in front of us, that we sacrifice what God has ahead of us. And I love what has to happen. Jacob, the Bible says, has to look like Esau. He has to feel like Esau. He has to dress up like Esau. He has to get hairy. He has to get smelly. And he stands before, that's exactly what happened. Esau was a hunter. And uh, he stands before Isaac. And I, I love that Isaac is oblivious to anything but his son. And he's going to bless whatever is in front of him simply because of the fact that it's his son. And what Jacob has to do is he has to get into Esau. He has to feel like Esau. He has to smell like Esau. He has to sound like Esau in order to get his older brother's blessing. I've got good news for you. The day that you became a Christian, you got into Christ. So that you now sound like him, feel like him. And when the father puts his hand on him, he sees him and he sees you in the same breath, in the same view. Oh, friends, when you become preoccupied with your Christ-likeness, suddenly your desire to sin begins to be get minimized because you're so overwhelmed by the beauty of who he is. You see, the fleeting pleasure of sin is only overcome by a greater pleasure of delight in the one that we love. We need to change the way we think. One of the greatest areas of spiritual warfare is not on some high mountain. It's not on some you know, place where there might be satanic activity. The greatest area of spiritual warfare is in the area of your thought life. How you think. 
The Bible says in Colossians that Jesus took away all authority from the enemy. When Jesus died on a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull, he stripped the enemy of his authority. The enemy is powerful. You need to understand that. But power and authority are two different things. Power is the ability to act. Authority is the permission to act. The Bible says that Jesus stripped the enemy of his permission to act. The only way the enemy has permission to act is by the authority that you now give him. You see, for many of us, the greatest place of spiritual warfare has to happen in our Golgotha, in the place of our skull. Where we begin to battle with thoughts about who we were instead of who we are. And what we agree with, we empower. You see, when you agree with the enemy's um, lies about you, when you agree with the enemy's lies about your community, about your country, you empower those things to then begin to work itself out. What are you agreeing with in your life? What are the things that you are setting up as a place of agreement, which is now empowering that truth? The Bible says we one or two agree upon, or two or three agree upon touching anything, it shall be done. That's an eternal principle. If you agree with the devil, it shall be done. But if you agree with Jesus, what are you agreeing with? Change the way you think. Upgrade your thinking. Because a renewed mind proves the will of God. You see, when you begin to think like him, you begin to prove and demonstrate what is his good, perfect, and acceptable will. There's only one will of God. It's good, it's perfect, and it's acceptable. And the way that is proved is by you living a life through the lens of your newness. It's by you living a life through your new creation. And the reality of this is very simple. We activate this by faith. You see, for many of us, we all operate in a level of faith. It just depends on what we're believing in. You see, many of us say, God, give me more faith. The reality is you're believing something whether or not it's in God or in his purposes. We just have to change the way we think. We have to upgrade our thinking to begin to reorientate our mind, to begin to reorientate our will, to begin to reorientate our purpose around the reality of our Christ-likeness. Faith is the activating factor that begins to unlock the reality of the new creation in our life. And I find there are two extremes in faith. There's what I call the, um, the striving extreme of faith. And I see this in church very often. If you go to a prayer meeting, you'll spot someone who operates out of striving and trying to get something from God. Because they, at a prayer meeting, they normally look a little bit like this. <laughs> God! <laughs> and they start crying out to God as if God is less inclined to answer their prayer because uh, they need to convince him of the breakthrough. How many of you know God wants to answer your prayer long before you pray it? And you'll see it's all striving. Come on, God, you've got to do it. I need a breakthrough. When they're praying for the sick, they think it's about how loud they need to pray in order to get the breakthrough. Um, they think we need to fast. Clearly, I don't fast that often in order to get the breakthrough. Have you ever been to those prayer meetings? There's normally like this little vein that pops out on their forehead. 
And if you're leading that prayer meeting, you're not praying about any of the praying. If you're not praying, God, do not let that vein pop. We're going to have a messy place here. Do you know what I'm saying? And super intense, God, you've got to bring the breakthrough. Need to pray tongues for five hours. I remember when I heard about Smith Wigglesworth who woke up at four o'clock to break bread. I thought, I'm going to do that. The problem was the time nine o'clock came, I was grumpy and so not Christ-like because I was so super tired. And they strive and they're extreme because they think that's faith. Then there's what I call passive faith. And passive faith is kind of like this, and you can spot them at the prayer meeting too. It's kind of like, God, impress me if you can. I'm just going to... And it's, it's all about your suffering, will, Lord. And uh, if you really want to heal this person, you know, if you feel like it, you'll do it. I, I'm not going to work hard for this. God, I know that evangelism is something I should be doing, but you know who's going to get saved, and you can get them saved without my help. I mean, look what you did with Paul. So I'm just going to chill out here because, you know, I, I don't really need to do anything. Both extremes of striving and passivity are not faith. The faith that God has called us to in our new creation reality is the faith of rest. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And by implication, we now are seated in Christ in heavenly places. Our position is not one of striving, neither is it one of passivity. Our position is one of rest. Because you see... The reality is that the Bible says that a priest, when he is serving, when he is working, he has to stand. But Jesus offered up his body as a sacrifice once and for all. And he now is seated, indicating that the work has been completed. When the Bible says, Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, particularly in the book of John, it is a throwback to creation. Remember, John and Genesis start exactly the same way in the beginning. And John is a mimicking of Genesis in the seven days of creation. And it gets to the pinnacle because the last miracle that happens in the book of John is resurrection life. And Jesus is standing there and he says, it is finished on the cross. He is literally saying, like God did in Genesis, it is good. It is completed. I can now sit down. It is done. New creation can begin to take over this chaotic and formless world, just like creation took over as God sat down and said, it is good. Jesus was not just talking about your justification. He was talking about the new creation life that now lives through you. Oh, brothers and sisters, everything changes when you begin to understand that. And so Jesus is seated. Can, I'm just going to take a few moments just to deviate very quickly. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live. Now the Bible says, uh, the, the verse we often quote, it says, the life I now, I now live, I live in, by faith, in the Son of God. Um, the, the verse actually doesn't quite say that on the original. The verse actually says, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Here's what was happening on the cross, because it's so beautiful. Jesus is God. How many of you know that? But he's fully man. And in order to make a covenant that will last for eternity, God has to make covenant with himself on the cross. 
And so the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And it's a beautiful picture because what's happening is God makes covenant with his son Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, so that because he makes a covenant with himself, he cannot lie because it's impossible for him to lie. Isn't that good? And so Jesus starts off and he goes, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And many of us in that moment think that that was the moment when God turned his back on Jesus. How many of you have ever heard that? I want to suggest to you that that's unbiblical. There's never been a moment when God turned his back on Jesus. Listen, God is less preoccupied with your sin than you think. We say things like God cannot be tainted by sin. God will not focus on sin. How many of you know that the devil was in God's presence? That could happen in the book of Job. God is much more powerful than sin. He's just not impacted or affected or infected by sin. And so Jesus says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And he quotes a verse out of Psalm chapter 22. And anyone would have understood this, that in Jewish custom, when a rabbi quotes the first line of a verse, he's expecting you to remember the rest of that chapter. It's kind of like me saying, for God so loved that he... I'm expecting you to know that verse, and if you don't know that verse, we need to help you get saved. <laughs> All right? I'm expecting you to know. So Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, and right about the middle of Psalm 22 is a beautiful verse. It says that God will not turn his face from the afflicted. He will not turn his back on the afflicted. And Psalm chapter 22 ends with this. It is the Lord himself who has completed it. It is finished. You see, Jesus starts off with, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Because in his humanity, he's going, I can feel the weight of sin. I can feel the weight of pain. I can feel the weight of everything that would try and separate me from God. And if I was on that cross as a man, I would have said, God, you have forsaken me. You've left me alone. But Jesus is not doing that. In that moment, he's quoting a psalm of faith. Knowing that at the end, God brings the victory. He's not quoting despair. He's not saying, you've turned your back on me. He's saying, God, you've been true to your word. And as the man Christ, where I would have been faithless, he was faithful. So that even when I don't have faith, because I'm resting in him, his faith provides the breakthrough for me. And so the writer to Hebrews says, even when we are faithless, he is still faithful. You see, sometimes our family is going through some massive health issues at the moment. And there are moments when I sit down to pray and I can't quote a scripture. I can't quote some wonderful Christian line because I don't have it in me. The best I can do sometimes is moan and groan. And you know what? In that moment, I'm resting in the faith of Jesus. Because even in his worst moment, he still had faith knowing that his father would come through him. Because his father never turned his back on him and his father will never turn his back on you. This is not the faith of striving. It's not the faith of passivity. It's the faith of rest. Because God wants to bless the rest of your life. He wants to bless your rest. You see, living in the reality of victory, living in the reality of overcoming sin, living in the reality of this divine exchange is not based on how much we work. It's not based on how much we try and convince ourselves to believe really, really hard. It's simply based 
I'm resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you realize who and whose you are? And there's some of you in places of despair and brokenness and you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know how I'm going to see the will of God in this area. I want to encourage you, rest. You see, I've got complete confidence that he who began a good work, he is faithful to complete it in you and in me. That's good news. That's good news. And so in view of the incredible kindness and mercy of God, and he is the kindest person I know, offer your bodies to become the conduit for resurrection life. So that as you do, you will begin to change the way you think through the lens of your new creation and your Christ-likeness in order to prove what is the good, the acceptable, and the perfect will of God. See, this is not a verse that's supposed to get you depressed. It's a verse that's supposed to make you extremely happy because God has done what no one else could do in Christ Jesus by reconciling you to him so that you are now participators with the very resurrection life of Christ. How many of you want to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice now? Because it's a whole lot more fun when you realize it's about life, not about death. I'm so glad that the Lord saved me. Father, we just love your presence. We love what you're doing in this church. Thank you for your kindness. I wonder if I could have someone just come and play on the guitar. I just need the guitar. It'll be fine.